Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. So I'm here with Sean Navarro, who is the head of DSA in Las Vegas. Oh, I'm sorry, co-chair for DSA. Oh, pardon me, co-chair. I, I heard you were like the guy in charge. So, well, right now we we had two co-chairs. Um, one's moving to Reno. He was an organizer at SEIU. The other one's moving to Seattle. So right now I'm the only co-chair. So I'm a bit of like the regional manager of socialism, if you will. I love that. So let me ask you a question. So my family's from Sweden. So I grew up okay. seeped in democratic socialism. Yep, that yep, yep. these words are fine with me. They don't scare me. But a lot of Americans are sort of intimidated or they don't understand what that means. Do you have an argument that you give those folks that kind of sort of sells them on the idea of Medicare for all, having uh, publicly funded universities, which, actually, which is actually something we once had. So Yeah, it seems like everyone from your angry uncle to your random friends on Facebook has an opinion on what is socialism. Um, something I find interesting is when you actually talk about specific issues, like say free college, uh, canceling student debt, Medicare for all, um, people are really in for it. Uh, overwhelmingly, poll after poll, people are in favor of those issues. So when you take it issue by issue that are quote-unquote socialist, people are in favor of it. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize they, they socialism may have a bad word, be a bad word in America. Uh, it's had a, a huge smear campaign against it for the past 40 years. The word has been weaponized. Yes, absolutely, 100%. Um, but when you actually talk to people about the issues, how they feel about like Medicare for all, um, how they feel about immigration reform, they actually find up, they line up pretty closely with what would be considered socialism in the country. Well, I think part of the weaponization of the word socialism in the United States has been this idea that it's totalitarian, yes. and it's not. So if you go back and you look at the literature, even from uh, Marx, mm -hmm. it's about the democracy itself owning the means of production. And I think after you explain that to people, they sort of have a different viewpoint, like a co-op is a really good, what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, it's right in our name, democratic socialism. How we kind of describe it, we believe that um, the major institutions that control our society, from healthcare to the corporations we work for, should be democratically maintained, owned by the workers, for the workers, and not for making profit for the 1% or for the people on top. Um, and, uh, like for everything from healthcare, the uh, kind of places we work for, uh, we just want people to be in control. And, and the profits that people are contributing to go to the people instead of going to a small select few. And that's exactly what's happening in the country. 82% of the new wealth that was created last year went to the 1%. Yes. Not only is this immoral, it's yes. untenable. 100%, yes. So let me ask you a question. In Sweden, there's a policy where every corporate board has two uh, union members or two worker members on the board by law. They, they're required to do this. Is this something that the United States should consider? Oh, 100%, yes. We need to have more worker ownership. Um, I think that people need to be able to own the labor they create. So that's absolutely something that we should be creating here in the U.S., 100%. Do you have a favorite philosopher? Uh, I do not, no. Uh, I'm so sorry. Uh, listen, we love if, you, if you're big into theory, we, that's great. But here at the DSA, we're a big tent. We take people from less experience to more experience. We, we kind of have a saying, like, you just, you don't need to know all the marks. You just need to know, like, Wu-Tang's cream. Kropotkin. Yes. You just need to know, like, listen to Wu-Tang's cream. Uh, listen to Dolly Parton's 9 to 5. You know what I mean? Like, if you just dislike your boss, you're okay. That's Wait. What, yeah. Dolly Parton might be the best philosopher ever, let's be honest. 100%, yes. 9 to 5, that is the official theme of socialism. We're declaring it today. Yes. So, uh, recently some polls have been coming out where 70% of Americans, whether they're Republican or Democrat, yes. support the idea of Medicare all if it's framed properly. I think that's a good sign. 100%, yeah. I think Medicare all is going to be a big kind of um, 
kind of opening people up to like what could be called socialism. I think for so long we just haven't seen effective government policy. Like a good example I like to use is um, the Obama had a policy where you could turn in your old car. I think it was called Cash for Clunkers, and it was so successful that they literally it, they saw over demand. I think if we have programs that directly materially affect the pe people's lives, um, you see that they're very successful. People are in favor of them, and just for so long we've just been focusing on on helping the one percent uh, and, and, and frankly welfare for big corporations and the rich. It's corporate welfare. Look, that is the the one percent has been extracting wealth Absolutely. from everybody else for decades now, decades. So now, has DSA in Las Vegas been doing canvassing work for Bernie Sanders? Yes, um, we actually run an official Bernie staging location out of the garage, twenty nine thirty four Natalie Avenue. Come on down, the leftist garage. We're gonna be out there all day, every day till caucus day. Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and today I'm speaking with Dan Rule, who is a Nevada state uh, progressive activist who's been involved with the Democratic Party there in the state of Nevada. And we're going to talk about some of the shenanigans and occurrences that happened this week with the changing of the guard within the Nevada state Democratic Party. Welcome, Dan. Hi, good afternoon, or whatever time it is when you're watching or listening. Yeah. <laughs> So, Dan, this is a wild story. Story: The entire Democratic state party was pretty much replaced with uh, Democratic Socialists of America candidates, uh, clean slate, straight across. And in response, the establishment Democrats that were holding those positions before uh, and the staff, the actual staff that works for the Democratic state party, resigned. So this is just crazy yeah. to me that they would throw that kind of a temper tantrum, especially given that they were running um, as a unity ticket, which was even in the name of the slate, right? Progressive yeah. unity or something of this. What's actually happening here? Yeah, I, th I think one of the stories about all this and this whole conversation is that up until this Saturday, the 6th, uh, I, as much as the establishment, as much as sort of the, the body politic in Nevada would say, oh, we anticipated this happening, we thought this would happen. The reality is, you know, on the ground, that simply wasn't the case. Every major elected official in the state of Nevada had backed this, what they called the unity ticket. And I mean, all the way up to, I mean, literally, you couldn't, there is no elected official in the state of Nevada who, who, who backed the progressive slate. There wasn't a single one. Wow. Um, everyone choosing to, to back who was already a very progressive candidate. I mean, let's be honest, either candidate was a, was a, a democratic socialist, but, but what was really clear was that um, as the progressive wave, which started in 2016, then grew legs in 2018 when Amy Valella ran for Congress right. in Nevada, and then further grew legs in 2020 when Bernie absolutely decimated the, the, um, the Biden ticket oh, in Nevada. Yeah and did what many people said was impossible, which was to win Nevada. He won it um, by a landslide. I was there. It was amazing. Yeah, in some instances, two to one, um, which was just incredible. And then we saw this sort of circular, you know, motion by the Democratic establishment to essentially, I mean, let's not say essentially, every other party was, their phone calls were made, things happened, and, and you know, they really focused their energy and effort around Biden. Similarly, what you have in Nevada is a, a party establishment which is run through the state organization and i think we we are all involved in politics a lot so we it's easy to get myopic when we look at this but i think let's think of it as a voter in nevada if you're a registered democrat the the nevada state democratic party is is from a brand perspective 
what you think of as representing you in the state that you live in. It's the right. state party of your state, ideologically, your values. And so a lot of people in a first sort of, you know, gut instinct is to just believe the party and to sort of say like, yeah, these are, these, this is my team, they're on my side. And, and so that's sort of been what it has been for the last few years. At any rate, after this massive sort of um, unexpected, I, I shouldn't say unexpected, after this massive, well-deserved, well-earned victory in the caucus, yeah. a lot of pieces of uh, that, that organizing that happened in Nevada still remained with the goal of, of moving the needle forward. Mm -hmm. And so you had, you had that infrastructure actively participating in local politics, getting, getting on the boards, doing everything that the party will always tell you. When you try to make change in the Democratic Party, they'll, they will always say, hey, you know, there's a way that we do this. Hey, yeah. slow down. <laughs> yeah, this, you know, you got to understand this is a this is a private organization. Mm -hmm. You got to follow the rules. You got to show up at the meetings. You got to put in the time. You got to make the phone calls. And so, you know, the, the, the crew at Left Caucus, the crew at the Las Vegas Democratic Socialist, they did the work over a period of two years to show up to the meetings to get people engaged while i will while i will note also building one of not one of the most effective community aid organizations in southern nevada so you're doing all this sort of political machinery in the background while having this true benefit of mutual aid which you know for example in the pandemic uh las vegas dsa organized hundreds actually thousands of deliveries of food when, when people are really suffering they right. um developed a mutual aid fund where we were able to provide funds for people who are struggling things our own local elected officials struggled to do yeah and and continues to build this network this diverse broad group of people and so where that all came to a head after the presidential election which is another pause point where learning from the lessons of 2016, the progressive activists this time said, no, we're, we are not going to make this a conversation of, you know, the very, very left versus the establishment. There's a goal ahead of us, which is to win the presidential election. And so in spite of being challenged, sort of, you know, kicked to the curb in some instances, all of those progressive activists in Nevada and really around the country showed up and we got Joe Biden elected and then we showed up again and then we got two senators elected. And we took control of the Senate. And we and we owned up to that part of the that agreement, right? We, yeah. we did the work on the ground. Um, so lo and behold, and, and the establishment uh, didn't seem to appreciate that, did they? Or or even recognize it, which is you know, crazy to me. Still, yeah, I mean, we're still seeing some of the sort of toxic conversation mm -hmm. that's often lobbed at the very very progressive end of the party um, around you know calling people Bernie Bros is just that classic line or right. or, or talk in Nevada. Anytime there's a conversation about progressive activism, somehow this conversation about violent Bernie Sanders supporters throwing <laughs> chairs in 2016 comes up, and it's just absurd. It's absurd. It um, didn't happen. Why is that story still being propagated? And in fact, a local journalist, is it Ralston Report? Yeah. I He had a scathing report this week on the progressives, and he was trying to poo-poo this uh, win that you just had. And saying that was the end of the Democratic Party in the state of Nevada, I think that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever read. If anything, the opposite is true. I have never seen, I've never seen such engagement as I did last year during the primary. The fact 
that Bernie Sanders absolutely swept that. And I had spent the whole week there. I had been at several of his functions. And I've been noticing that there's a big break between union members that support Medicare for all and union members that don't. My particular union Medicare plan is now being managed by Anthem Blue Cross, and it's nothing like it used to be. It's pretty crappy. And I think that's probably happening across the board. And I think it's uh, important that as union members, we get behind this idea of Medicare for all because it's everybody in, nobody out. What are your thoughts on that? I support uh, Medicare for all. Uh, in th this session of Congress, we've passed many bills seeking to address the high cost of prescription prices, the lack of coverage with people with uh, pre-existing conditions, and the fact that prices continue to skyrocket every day, and that many of the managed care organizations are really there to block and to prevent people from getting the health care that they need. The price of insulin is a tremendous problem in districts like mine where people are affected disproportionately. So what I'm trying to convey to people is the Medicare for All system makes sense because you don't have to deal with all the bureaucracy, you don't have to deal, the companies, small employers don't have to deal with that. And the only thing that, you know, the clinics remain uh, open and accessible. The only thing that changes is the payment, where you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about an illness, a sickness, a catastrophic event happening in your life. That will be covered. The only thing that changes is that the payment is gets made for you, and you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to have the headaches. You don't have to ration medicine. Like I've met people who are rationing their insulin. So it's moving to where the rest of the industrialized world is in and having a universal system. I 100% agree. And you're, you're making a really good case about the fact that small businesses would also benefit because it frees up all of that income. I have uh, some of the strongest retail strips in all of Chicagoland in working class, predominantly Latino communities. So the fact that there's that vibrancy means that all these employers are worried about their health care, their own health care. I met small business owners who are rationing their own intake of insulin because of the system that doesn't work. So this is a natural progression. This is good stuff and workers ought to really be thoughtful about it and mindful and not to be scared by appeals to you know something dramatic and terrible is going to happen and you're going to be left on the street on the contrary. 100%. One more question for you. I know you have to mosey on but I also wanted to ask you about this week I attended the uh it was sponsored by Amnesty International, a few other organizations. It was the uh, campaign, the presidential campaign on immigration. The only person that spoke out against ICE that actually stated they wanted to abolish ICE and roll back the structures pre-Patriot Act, where we, there was no DHS or ICE, was Faiz from the Bernie Sanders campaign. Warren is saying we keep it in place. Uh, Biden is saying we keep it in place. You can go down the list. Like Nobody was willing to make that brave stance. And I actually agree with this, because none of these organizations are actually doing security anymore, which was the intent and purpose, right? Now it's all about eliminating immigration. You have, um, at DHS, I know of at least 12 ex-FAIR, John Tanton organization appointees that work there, and that's a white nationalist organization yes. that not only wants to get rid of illegal immigration, they want to get rid of all my, uh, immigration. So do you agree with that position, and, and if so, why? Since we 
got rid of the Immigration and Naturalization Service. It's an agency that provides services. We went to ICE, and during that time, we have tripled the budget of ICE, mostly for militarizing the budget and a focus on criminalizing people and looking at immigration in the worst way. Let us be realistic. Our economy, because we're an aging society, requires immigrants to be here. They're here already. Why don't we take care of them? Just as the American public agrees that we should provide a pathway to the DACA or the so-called dreamers to legalize their status and to full citizenship, because they're as American as you and I are, we should be thinking about other people. We've passed the Dream and Promise Act in Congress by a whopping margin in the House, it's in the Senate. Similarly, we pass the Farm Modernization Act, which can provide a legal pathway for farm workers who everyone recognizes we need if we want to enjoy our way of life and good food in places like Vegas and the comforts you know that they bring. So we need them. This is another piece of reform. I think if we continue on this way, we can get to a place where everyone who is here can have equal protection. Everyone here can earn good wages, pay taxes, and contribute to the public purse that all of us want. So, uh, to, you know, let us remember that we have come to a place in our history where the narrative has been to criminalize people that we need. People who aren't criminals and people who simply seek what other immigrant, waves of immigrants have sought in America, an opportunity to participate and not to have to live in the shadows or exploitation. That's right, and they are being exploited. Oh, by the way, I voted against funding for DHS because we continue to militarize, we continue to terrorize, and looking at the images of children in cages and the way that migrants seeking political asylum are treated at the border today under Donald Trump with the Remain in Mexico policy is cruel. We need to return to a humanitarian approach to it. And you know what, I'm going to argue that that needs to go back even further than the Obama years because look... Yes. That started under the Obama-Biden administration, and yes. and the Biden uh, surrogate got called out for this by somebody in the audience, and the response was very n unacceptable, in my opinion, because it was just deflection saying Donald Trump, Donald Trump. But we have to recognize, I'm a Democrat, we have to recognize that our side sort of started that and handed this very toxic football to a fascist. The move toward incarcerating so many people in society began under Bill Clinton. He thought it was an astute political move. We've come to realize how wrong-headed it was. He's apologized. Others have apologized. The folks that did not get apologized to are those who are suffering the ravishes of the criminal justice system today that includes the criminalization of immigrants and mass detentions and private prisons excel in the realm of our immigration policy because that's what we're doing to people, locking them up and denying them due process. And that's wrong. They should get a fair shake before a judge always. So ensuring judicial protections for migrants is very important as well. Thank you for talking with me. I agree with you, sir, and thank you for being here today. I had attend attended many other presidential uh, caucus uh, issues that were going on that week. With, with I saw Tom interviewed Tom Steyer, so it wasn't just Bernie I was covering, but there was absolutely the largest groundswell of progressive voters I have ever seen anywhere. So for him to just completely act as if that didn't happen is absolutely insane. If anything. The DSA and left caucus, et cetera, have brought more people into the De Nevada State Democratic Party. They've, they've brought voters in, voters that might have gone to Republicans because they're hurting financially. Yeah, 
the brought in and and you know to let's give credit where credit is due judith whitmer the new the new head of the nevada state democratic party absolutely did the groundwork yeah brought in a diverse of new of you know and when you say bringing in voters it's a lot more complicated than just telling someone to go show up and vote That's on right. election day it's all of the logistics of getting them energized do you know where to go vote do you know how to can you drive right. someone can you bring someone all of those yeah. things happened um really without credit and and again like up until Saturday at about 2 p.m., I, I really do not believe anyone in the establishment, in spite of the financial mechanisms that they were doing as an emergency break, yeah. um, really thought that this would happen. It was it was a very interesting vote. But what's also interesting is, I mean, you, you mentioned John Ralston. John Ralston, the sort of the, quote, political expert of Nevada, said that Saturday was going to be this bloodbath. He said it was just going to be a bloodbath. It's going to be embarrassing. You know that that there was no chance this was going to happen i'm paraphrasing him of course but right. he set the narrative that this was, was impossible lo and behold the activists showed up yeah. led by judith in an amazing progressive slate and they won the ticket mm -hmm. and um, i guess i guess what i would say there to that argument is when the democratic establishment has said you got to show up you got to do the meetings you got to you got to put in the time make the phone calls send the text messages i want to acknowledge that left caucus DSA under Judas leadership and a lot of other great people, Amy Valella. So I'm here with Amy Valella. We're here in Las Vegas at the Bernie Sanders bunkhouse uh, party. We're out hanging out with canvassers, volunteers who've been out here working all week. A lot of them have come from out of state. And out of the country. And out of the country, that's right. There were some folks that I had met the other day from Canada, actually. Uh, so the movement is definitely here. It's definitely strong. Last we talked, you were running for office. <laughs> yeah. And you've got this amazing story that uh, that's tragic, but it sort of propelled you into activism. So is the main reason that you're supporting Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All, is that why you originally decided that he was your guy? I mean, it was one of the things. Um, it's definitely what made me start uh, looking into Bernie Sanders. Um, I remember the moment that I knew I was going to follow Bernie Sanders. Um, it was about health care. I came across a video of him from 1993, the year my daughter was born. And he was fighting for her, for someone he didn't know, from 1993. But it wasn't just that he was fighting about health care. It was, I realized this man was fighting when it wasn't popular, was fighting for it when it wasn't the politically expedient thing to do. He was fighting for it in a room full of nobody. And he continued and he was consistent. He was consistent on fighting for the people no matter what, what pressures and no matter what pushback he was getting. That's why I supported Bernie Sanders. 100%. And actually, I came across some video of he you did this public access show when he was mayor in Burlington called uh, Bernie Speaks to the Community. And I unearthed some video of from that show where he was actually talking about universal health care, Medicare for all, back in 1987. That's how consistent this right. guy is. 1987. Nobody was talking about Medicare for all in 1987. So what I appreciate about Bernie Sanders is he is consistent in his, in his policy beliefs. You know where you're getting from that guy. And you don't know that about some of the other candidates. For example, uh, I don't know that there's anybody else running at this point that actually supports Medicare for All. You have Warren kind of backtrack from her position where she's got this two-tier thing where she's going to implement in maybe the third year she said she started fighting for it. You've got everybody else trying to a uh, argue that access or a public op option is the same thing. They want to keep the health insurance. I, obviously, these things aren't the same. So what are your thoughts on that? Shalyn had access. My daughter had access. And she's dead. 
So as they sit back and they talk and they do the talking points to keep their donors happy, every day more and more people are dying. As we sit back and we talk about the political, what can be done and what's not done and what's pie in the sky and, and what is, you know, too much and it's too left versus too center, it doesn't matter where you fall on the political spectrum, you are not immune to feeling the effects of our for-profit barbaric healthcare system. This is not a left versus right, Democrat versus Republican issue. This is a we, us, we the people issue. You're not immune because you're Republican when you walk into a hospital and you don't have insurance. You're not immune. I wasn't immune as a dual insured person, a military spouse, with the best health insurance in the world when my children didn't have it, right? And this is the thing people have to get through. We have to stop looking at just what's surrounding our own personal life and start thinking about our community. Because unless the most vulnerable in our community is taken care of and safe, we are just as vulnerable as they are. Yeah, no, I agree. Here's the other thing, uh, and you bring this up that it's not a right versus left issue, and I agree with that. So there's some polling that's been coming out recently where a plurality of Americans across the board, across the political spectrum, support a Medicare for All plan. And I think it's important to mention that when you talk to folks that are out in, in some of these Midwest rural areas where, where you know you have the establishment arguing that those folks are never going to buy this kind of a plan, they actually will. They get it. They realize when they have a, a, an insurance plan that's costing them $800, $900 a month and they still have a 5K deductible that they can't afford, they don't go to the doctor even though they have insurance because they can't even afford that 5K up front, let alone the co-pays. So the system is needs to be imploded. It's, it's absolutely profiteering run amok. There's a reason no other country does what we do. And I think you're right. It's the plutonomy versus everybody else. Because when you see the folks that are actually arguing we can't do this, that we don't have the ability to do this, it's the plutonomy. It's the one percenters. So I want to talk about Michael Bloomberg for a second because I think in many ways he epitomizes the rot that's in the Democratic Party. This is a guy who is a racist. He's a Republican. He might as well still be a Republican. I know he's running as a Democrat. And it kind of gets under my skin a little bit that the same people that would attack Bernie Sanders and say he's not a real Democrat are all of a sudden getting behind Bloomberg. It seems very hypocritical to me. So what are your thoughts on Michael Bloomberg? You know, when we are talking about what our party stands for, it's not just a title. It's not just a label that's, that is stamped on something and says, okay, you have a D, so you are a Democrat, good enough. Our party should be the party of the people. We should be fighting for policies that uplift the working class, that uplift the poor, that uplift our brown and black brothers and sisters that are out there making sure that we are safe. If we're not fighting for that, shame on us. I 100% agree with you. And there's a reason that the Democratic Party is down to having 26, 27% of registered voters in the country. People are fed up. They've become independent. The largest voting bloc is left-leaning independents. And this is why it's so important to factor that in when you're looking at who is going to win in a general election. Most of those folks support Bernie Sanders. So folks that want to just look at polls with Democrat-only voters are not looking at the entire picture in my opinion. Right. So now in Nevada, <clears throat> we have the caucus on Saturday. Can you walk us through a little bit about the early vote, voting part of the caucus? Because there's some confusion on that. I know that they are, were saying, they put this thing out that you had to choose uh, three choices and that information hadn't gotten out. Do you think some of this stuff is going to affect the outcome on Saturday? How does that figure into the caucus format? 
I mean, from what we've heard so far, the early voting portion of the uh, of the process has gone by relatively smoothly. Um, I think where where everyone is a little bit concerned because of the problems with the software is is the caucus portion and getting all those votes together. Um, but when I went out to the voting sites, I was at quite a few of them. Um, we saw people checking to make sure that they had checked the three different boxes they had signed. I, there are some pe that were missed, and from what we've been told, they're they're now being called to tell them you're is not validated. You can come in and still caucus, right? So I'm really happy that in Nevada we have started an early vote process because here's the thing. In Nevada, and especially in, in Las Vegas, we are, sh we are full of shift workers. The strip doesn't shut down because we have a caucus. So who does that mean is left out of the, the voting process in the primary? The working class. So having early voting has been, I think it's a huge improvement in our, in our democracy here in Nevada. And so I'm really excited about that. And I'm more excited in that as I was out there in the early, early voting, I was again traveling to the different locations. Um, after Senator Sanders did his rally, there was hardly anyone at the voting station when this was happening. He marched us over to the voting station. And I, I left, and then within like 30 minutes, it's like, Amy, you gotta come back out. There's a, there's a three hour wait for voters, and they were going down the sidewalk, snaking around for three hours. And it just wasn't at UNLV. Wow. It was also at all our CSN locations and UNR. Like, all of our college locations were two, three hour waits with hundreds of people in line waiting to vote. College students waiting to vote. I think they have felt here in Nevada and across this country that it's time that their voice is heard and they're not going to sit back anymore and let this system take away their future, their environment, their health care, their jobs, and put them in debt and leave a planet that's in horrible disarray. They're ready to get out there and fight back. I agree. And, you know, I love the, I'll mention this, the reason I love the early voting thing is, is what you were mentioning. When I was in Iowa, I spoke with several folks that wanted to caucus, but because they're working class and they're working two jobs, they were having a, a tough time figuring out how they were going to make it to the caucus that night. So I think you're right. That stuff targets the working class more than it targets anybody else. I think um, Nina had actually done a video about why we voted on Tuesday in the first place, and it kind of exposed the, the, the ridiculous reasons why. I mean, it should really be a holiday. This is the most important thing that we can do in this country is participate in the democracy itself. And we're making it difficult for folks to do that. You know, voter suppression has all kinds of forms. It's not just voter ID laws. It's also things that are subtle in this way, right. in my opinion. So right. anyway, what are your parting words for the listeners? And do you think Bernie's going to prevail on Saturday night? <laughs> Get out and vote. I mean, bring a friend, bring your neighbors, bring your frenemies, bring your frenemies. <laughs> we need to vote because when we come together, when we vote, young, old, black, white, you know, brown, whatever the case may be, across our communities, when we come out and vote, we win. And I am looking forward to winning this Nevada caucus. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Amy. You have a good night. Right. Amy's uh, former campaign manager, Union Court, they all did that work and it had an amazing payoff. And we will look back at what happened on March 6th in 20 years or 30 years from now. And because you, you often talk about the Democratic Convention in 1968, that's a huge moment, change power structure, change political that's structure. Right. People will look back at when the Democratic Socialists took control of the state party in Nevada 
as a profound informative moment in American politics. And it's, and it's profoundly because it is a group of people who do not have access to political power structure, who do not have access to the kind of corporations who can write a $250,000 check to a PAC, and right. who do not have access to what we in Nevada refer to as the Reed machine, this former network of um, campaign staffers from Harry Reed. They did it without that. They did it with people who have, you know, who are struggling, people who, who are looking for jobs right now, people right. who have their own troubles that they go to when they're done with that meeting at, on Saturday. And it's a really great story. It's a model for what's going to happen if the left has courage, which I believe we do, to move the needle forward politically. You know, and interestingly enough, some of the uh, ex-Reed employees were also also worked for the Bernie Sanders campaign. So some of those folks weren't entirely committed to the establishment, I think, even when they were working for Reed. But you're right. That is that is his old uh, mechanism that's still been in play for many years now. And it just completely crumbled. And I, it's surprising to me that it, it's a shock because if you've been paying attention to that wave I was you know, talking about at the primary going forward, it wasn't just the primary, right? The DSA was very yeah. formative in, in uh, that massive win that Bernie Sanders had in the state. Um, yeah. And I think they were also very formative in getting out the Hispanic vote, uh, which was a massive, yeah. massive turnout that day. And it's why Bernie Sanders won, T.O. Bernie, right? Very formative. Yeah. Um, I want to yeah. talk about some of the financial things that are going on because the Democratic Party has just, you know, the things they do with consultant money is just beyond belief to me. They take all of these donations and they funnel it usually to five or six major chunks of money to five or six consultants. There's a lot of quid pro quo that goes on. This is just a rinse, wash, repeat cycle that I've seen from the party. And this story we're talking about right now has proven to be not an exception. So um, they moved 450000 into the DSCC coffers, and I believe that that money is going to be used to support uh, Catherine Cortez Masto and her reelection uh, coming up. But that's not the only money that they moved over, right? Um, and I also think Cortez Masto, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, but did she not previously ask uh, Whitmer to drop out of this race a few months back? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think what in, in you know in the view the view of many on the left in Nevada is that with this wave of you know progressive activism and the, the citizenry getting power where it belongs, honestly, that you have this notion when you see some. I mean, look what happened with um, AOC, right? Right. The uh, AOC replaced the third most powerful congressman in the United States Congress, um, the head of communications. For the for the congressional democrats that's who aoc replaced with a model like this and i think when you see this kind of groundswell of activism in nevada i think there is a legitimate fair concern among big ticket democrats yeah. that that when you look at a group capable of of two to one beating joe biden in the primary right that is a legitimate primary threat if you're a senator or or a member of congress and, and that's not, you know, not to mention that you have one of the most popular congressional candidates on the left in the last 10 years in Amy Valella. Yeah, Amy's of, great. You know, waiting for She's that, a fighter. Yeah, waiting for that. She is a fighter, waiting for that opportunity to really, you know, finish the work that she started of advocating for working people yeah. in this country. And it is a legitimate threat. Now, what's interesting is that Judith did commit to helping her get reelected. And I don't okay. speak for the state party at all. But what I would tell you is that 
as, as someone who's in the activist space, I believe, and many in the left in Nevada believe, if an elected official in our state is not comfortable with delivering to the needs of the activist base, and really when we say the activist base, these are things everyone wants. When right. you poll time and time and time again, these are policies Americans want. Affordable living minimum wage, $15 an hour. That's just the start, by the way. Medicare for all. Helping their kids work. Yeah, Medicare for all. These are policies that uh, are popular and, across yeah. the board, yeah. Yeah, Democrat, Republican. And, and you know, the the idea that somehow these are, are radical, crazy ideas yeah, um, that that does not that does not immunize you from accountability just because you have the D next to your name. It's it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's maybe a conversation for another day. But I think seeing that seeing the groundswell, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto had allegedly reached out and encouraged Tick Segerblom, Segerblom yeah. to run for the spot that and I think that kind of backroom power brokering um, was the first mistake because it was pretty transparent. Yeah. And, and I think once it became apparent to everyone that the establishment's goal to suppress activism mm -hmm. was to take an ally and put them in the position to sort of prevent the rest of the groundswell of activism, that was, I think, the first mistake. Right. The next mistake was in failing to really have any substantive conversation with anyone else on the other side of the ticket. And so in lieu of that conversation, activists did what they always do, which was built strength and power. Right. And we got butts in seats on those Zoom calls and we got people to show up and, and, and have their name counted. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so long story short, they win. What we find out as you point out is that the, the infrastructure that's in place in Nevada's Democratic Party took that opportunity to pull all of the money that was raised out uh, the vast majority of it from what it looks like. And, and as you mentioned, yeah. transferred $450,000 out. Almost but that's just to the DSCC. We're going to talk about the rest of the money in yeah. a second. But let me ask you this, Dan. They also said that all the consultants resigned as well. So I don't understand how it is that they transferred. We're talking about over $2 million in total to these consultants. And then they resigned. Where is this money going to go? This is crazy. Well, so, I mean, this is classic power brokerage in the yeah. Democratic Party, yeah. right? It's, this is what it is. There's no doubt about it. So what happened is immediately after Judith and the slate takes takes the win and, mm -hmm. and wins the ticket, all of these backroom conversations start happening. Right. And so you have the head, of, you know, the former head, the executive director of the party, which is not an elected official. So right. that's Alana. She now is going to go work for the DNC immediately resigns and had already arranged in the background a proactive severance pay for all of the staffers in every So they, they completely cut off all of the resources and said, hey, hey, congrats on your win. But yeah. Everyone was effective immediately. <laughs> and by the way, in addition to taking all of your money, we took more of your money and paid them all for a month's work anyways. And what, they, wait, hang on. Also, I think it needs to be pointed out, these folks were not fired. They still had jobs. Nobody was going to fire them. They chose to quit. So the fact that they're getting severance for quitting is pretty phenomenal. Especially at a time when so many, honestly, like so many people, take politics out of it, because there are great political strategists in Nevada on the left, when so many people are not as fortunate, right? Like I think that's, and, and the reality is like, 
some of those people have already have jobs lined up. They're already yeah. moving into different positions. You already see those those profiles being updated with the new jobs that they have, and they're going right. to land. They're going to they're not going to have difficult landings at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so to so to take even more assets away in the form of a severance. And don't get me wrong, severance is great. But what you correctly pointed out is there actually wasn't a plan to remove all of that infrastructure because you yeah. need that in you place. You need that infrastructure. They chose to yeah. leave and severance is generally reserved for people that are fired or laid off, which that makes sense yeah. to me. But, the, it's, yeah, but this to me doesn't feel right because they're choosing to leave. They're doing it out of spite. They're throwing a temper yeah. tantrum. And then they're saying, by the way, you're going to pay me a month's extra pay for throwing my temper tantrum. I This just doesn't feel right yeah. to me. Listen, sit right. And, and think of any time you take fast car think of any time you take uh, a new job it was the last time you took a new job right like there's that you know the the sort of nuts and bolts of just starting a new job mm-hmm. hey here's where the water cooler is here's where the power right bill is. training here's, yeah we gotta, pay, we gotta pay the internet we gotta what's the password to the computer to do right. the time cards like all of those things they just sort of left in a hurry and let's be honest that was a deliberate attempt mm-hmm. to hobble the party at a time when we needed to hit the ground running it's and the opposite so, of unity it's a temper tantrum yeah, it it was, but also let's not let's let's not kid ourselves. The 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 mass resignations was a signal. It was a signal yes. that you know you you you've gone against the will of the party. You will now have to work harder than you even thought you had to work before. And there are legitimate questions that I think should be asked in the future. This is a group of people who had access to a gigantic voter file in the form of van had access to tons of contact information for some of the most prime engaged voters. What happened with that information? Was it actually preserved and retained? Mm-hmm. We think it was preserved and retained, but where else did it go? Um, there's very there's very few restrictions on the type of data when you when you gather as a, as a private organization, which is what a Democratic Party is. So you take that huge voter file. I mean, these, these are things that are easily transferred over with relatively little regulation. Um, people people will hear about the voter file at their states, and it, and there is a, a state voter file, state voter registration. That is a state-run thing by by the governance of your state. Right. Each party and each group of the party is going to have also very specific, very valuable yeah. voter files and data, which in many ways are significantly more augmented with the sort of um, resource management tools that they have. And we're talking about these the, the capacity of these voter files is such that. You can dial into a household and understand things like earnings, who do they vote for, who do they want to vote for, what type of engagement, and you can use that to network out and and really build your progressive network. That type of information to give you an example of the value of it, um, uh, NV04, CD4, Amy Villalobos District, when the state party has that information, it then sells it. And so if you're running in that district, when Amy ran, if she wanted to buy that file from the state party, it's about $15,000 at the time that she ran. That's how much that information is worth. So where did it go? You know, there were no like really good safeguards on that information. As a voter in Nevada, I think it's fair to demand that sort of information as we move forward. Like we need to know where that information went. Absolutely. Was it changing? Did it go out? Because money is one thing, let's let's be honest. Like it's a a significant part of, of politics in America unfortunately, but resources are also significant. So to take the resources away from the state party out of what appears to be spite is something that should be reckoned with. Now, what I would say is this is a very talented, very capable group of people. And whatever setback was sent their way, this is only fueling activism on the ground in Nevada. 
And whatever the state, whatever the former party leadership thought, whatever the Reed machine thought it was accomplishing in sort of attempting to sort of cut everything off, it's actually having an engagement mechanism that I don't think could have been predicted. More people want to help, more people want to support, more, more people want to actually financially contribute to the party now that they know that it's in hands that can be trusted. Right. So it sort of backfired in a way. Um, I want to talk about specifically one of the largest recipients of funding was GPS Impact, which is a, um, a media relations advertising firm uh, that's uh, from Des Moines, Iowa. So they received yeah. in, in October 2020 alone over $1.5 million from the Nevada Democratic Party. Um, I know that they had it, past clients include Priorities USA, which was related to Hillary Clinton, um, Connor Lamb, who yeah. is an incredibly conservative Democrat. Um, but where where was this money going? Where who, Do you have any idea who this $1.5 million was going to support or shoot ads for or, or what it was about? Because that's really not clear yes. at this point. So, you know, one of the things that I can acknowledge I failed to sort of reckon with with the state party is that because of what we talked about earlier, you trust that the state party is aligned with you and they're working to advance your interests. Um, after the transition of power began to happen, one of the first things I did was to start to really dive into publicly available information about the state's um, financial resources, how they're mm -hmm. spending that information, where the money's coming from. And what we learned pretty quickly was that really what what the nevada state democratic party was was not a groundswell organizing activism organization designed to get people to go out to vote the primary purpose of the organization in my view was to be a conduit for big dollar donations from PACs, organizations and from people who could skirt federal campaign finance law so remember in a federal election you can donate just under three thousand dollars right well if you're a billionaire, if you're a hundreds of millionaire, that's not gonna get the kind of messaging that you want. But what you can do is you can donate to a network of PACs, yeah. which will then funnel money to state party organizations, mm -hmm. which will then use those to spend. So there's a couple of things I think with GPS Impact, where I'm actively working with some folks to understand when and where and how did that money go. What I would say, if, if you're a progressive activist in Nevada or, or across the country, you're gonna see this name pop up more and more and more. Um, and other big dollar consulting firms. I think it's myopic to just focus on, you know, the individual companies. What you know, that's this is a one of many, many, many consultants which has made a cottage industry out of American elections. Right. Um, I think the bigger problem there is how the money is moving around. And so, in that example, for that for that quarterly period that you're referencing, it's about four million dollars. And what and what the outgoing leadership did with that four million dollars was they took in massive. When you look at the contributions, um, which are all, all posted out now, and they're also on the Nevada Secretary of State's uh, website, these are not small dollar contributions. We're talking yeah. donations yeah. into the pack of $10,000, $5,000, $250,000, $100,000 from multiple organizations. Um, some of them are aligned individually. So they all go into the, the Nevada Democratic Party, and then the Nevada Democratic Party farms it all out. And what is really disappointing and what needs to change is I think most voters would assume that a state party that gets $4 million in a quarter is going to use that money to engage with people, use it to do good right. things. And at least support candidates happened. in the state that you're in. I mean, I think if you're donating to the Nevada State Democratic Party, you're doing it because yeah. you want the money to go directly into supporting Nevada Democrats. But it's not the case. Yeah. Yeah. So what a lot of folks are sort of now sort of saying in response is, 
oh, you know, these were last minute buys close to the election. There's a couple of things I think people should realize about that period of the American election in 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 uh, in America. First of all, if you look at the, the quarterly report immediately preceding that, which ended in September, right? September was a very active, very busy moment in American politics. The Democratic Party was actively promoting the right. campaign and joking. In Nevada, the state party only spent half of what it raised in that immediate, so it's like less than two months away from the election, only spends half of what it raised. Hmm. Then you have massive dumps of, of, of money coming to the party this last quarter. And you see these gigantic exports to companies like GPS impact, almost $2 million, right? And what I think, what we're gonna learn is that these were probably, you know, big television buys. They were probably big, big purchases of television. But if you're a consultancy firm, you're taking a significant cut of that ad buy. So that can be 5%, 10%, sometimes 15 to 20% of what that ad buy is. So if we buy $2 million worth of ads, that's a that's $200,000 yeah. easily. Um, and so what, what, it, what it really is, is this sort of money funnel. And really the end benefit is not the American voter or the, the activist or even the centrist Democrat in the state of Nevada. The benefactor is the big, big dollar consultants, which, you know, you had correctly pointed out. This is a firm that doesn't have a particularly great track record, right. um, but is very, Well, it certainly doesn't if you're a progressive. I mean, I know if I was donating right. to the California Democratic Party, I would want to I would want to believe that my money was going to support things that made sense to me. Like if I wanted to give money to the DNC, that would be a different conversation. But the fact that they're using state parties um, I guess this is yeah. what I'm getting at. The fact that they're using state parties to funnel millions of dollars into other campaigns, other things that, that we don't know what they are, is, is is sort of suspicious. And I I don't think voters in states would be happy about that. Yeah, I, I, I think most people, when they start to realize, they just look at the raw numbers. And these are numbers of, of dollar amounts that have real impact. I mean, $4 million, yes. most of us will not see that kind of money in our lifetimes, but to see the Democratic Party so casually funnel it from huge dollar packs to progr to not progressive to consultancy not, exactly. firm. We get it, we understand like, it, you don't have to be uh, you, you don't have to be a political scientist to understand like what the actual game is. The game is not engagement. Mm -hmm. And we can, we can look at that specifically with this GPS spend. Like you said, you know, almost, I mean, $2 million, right? So what do we in know In one about month. This? Let's be clear, that was just yeah. one month. I mean, granted, it was right before the November election, but what it's clear to me that that money wasn't spent on Nevada candidates for the Nevada state. Yeah. Like, so if you're donated to Nevada state, you want it. I would imagine most people don't realize where their money's going. I, yeah. I, that's why I'm bringing it up. I think that's a rather large transfer of wealth to a single consultant yeah. in one month from a state party. And it's not, it's not um, unusual. Yeah, it's not unusual, um, and it's not it's not it's not necessarily illegal either. No, it's totally illegal. What's interesting illegal. about this? It's perfectly period, legal. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's perfect. That's the problem, what, what isn't we, it? Think, <laughs> yeah. Just because something's well, legal doesn't mean it's ethical. I think politics now. They think the money's going. The money is going to. Sorry. Um, when a lot of people think of that period of the election, they think naturally to themselves, okay, they're gonna they're gonna buy you know, ads, cool. It's a, it's a week, a week and a half before the election. A couple of things about that. Number one, at that period of the game, the money's already been spent for it by and large. Oh, absolutely. Those big, big buys of ads. And, and two and three months in advance of that. Yeah. And at this period of That's time, right. as many of, as many of your, you know, your viewers will note, 
let's recall, Facebook suspended political advertising in the right. week prior, and then it has been suspended up until about a week ago. So anything on Facebook, anything on Instagram, or any of those Facebook network, that money was not being spent there. Mm-hmm. Um, or Twitter. Twitter stopped allowing right. political advertising. So you've got these two massive traditional funnels of political advertising shut down. And you have to ask, did the Democrats in Nevada really spend $2 million on TV ads in 2020? It's it's absurd on its face value, but it also shows. Well, you tell me you're our- in Nevada. Did you see did you see ads like happening? Oh, I mean, I'm. Well, I mean, let's be honest. I don't have television, right? I don't have okay. cable television. Most, <laughs> most people don't have. I mean, most people, it, most millennials, most Gen Z, they don't have. Yeah, I don't either. That's I'm Gen X, and I don't have. I have a television, but I don't have cable. I should say. That's that's the point of the conversation. Mm. Is how out of touch this kind of spending is. Four million dollars could effectively engage digital, digital strategy. It could also give really good jobs to activists doing actual really good work on the ground. How many activists might we have paid 15, 20, $25 an hour to go out and to engage voters, to bring people to the polls, to help them get there, to help them understand. I think most people in Nevada is a really good example. You know, at this time you, you get, the, you get that ticket, that ballot ticket. It's the president, maybe your congressional delegation. And then it's like three pages of, of things. People just don't even have literally the time to look at. Right. How might we have advocated for real policies um, Nevada is a good example because we elect a lot of our judges. How many judges got elected? People are just like, I'm yeah. just going to check this one because it feels good. There we go. Yeah, judges might are we tough. Spent, yeah, might we have spent that money advocating for effective you know, policy, which represents things like family courts, bankruptcy litigation, eviction courts. Like These are all really, really big things. But what is very clear is it, it, it's not even a question. The former Nevada State Party was not this, you know, exceptional organization that was devoted to engaging, right? What right. it was, was a funnel. It was a money funnel. And when you look at it in that picture, everything else makes much more sense. Because what you have is an organization that was kneecapped in its primary fundraising strategy, right. which was let's skirt federal campaign laws by allowing the shuffling around of money. Mm-hmm. And if you're the DNC right now, You've got to be a little bit nervous about what happened in Nevada last weekend because a huge part of the DNC's fundraising strategy is this sort of mostly legal, highly unregulated shuffling of money. And when you look at it through that picture, through that lens, it under you can really understand why everyone's freaking out on the establishment. But what you can also take faith in is knowing that while it's very true that, you know, I don't think that Judith and, and the new team at the Nevada, Senate, Nevada State Democratic Party, I actually don't think they're interested in those big dollar donations. I think they would turn it down if they had the opportunity. Right. Shouldn't speak for, They're for more Judith after the Bernie, one, Sandals, think, Bernie Sanders model. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so like, yeah, encouraging small dollar donations of which, by the way, I'm seeing just so many people for the first time ever have said, I trust the leadership now, I'm gonna support the state party. That's great. But what I think what I think is also interesting is someone like Judith and her team, what they can do with with fifty thousand dollars or with one hundred and fifty thousand dollars is going to be so much more effective than what we have seen from the state party before. Right. And that's also giving actual progressives jobs doing this very, very good work Um, in the Democratic Party. I think 
you know, there's a sort of centrist careerism in the Democratic Party. Absolutely. Where people get into the system, they become they become sort of addicted to the system, they become employed by the system, and they fiercely fight any changes to the system. The progressive model is a lot different. It is much more simple. It is, let's find a way to use our resources to solve the problems of others. And that is a fundamental opposition. You couldn't have two more diametrically opposed situations, but it makes sense why there's been such such opposition. Mm-hmm. It absolutely does. Well, I'll be curious to see how all this plays out with the finances um, when we find out what is going on. I think yeah. a lot of it's still up in the air, but that's some interesting insight. And now, so the next question is, does the new team, does Judith and her team, is there money in the coffers or did they transfer all of it? Uh, I don't have that answer for you. Okay. I can tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident that they're, that they are not left with very much. Now I am confident that there's money coming in. And if you're interested in supporting, I can tell you, you can trust that if you're sending money to the Nevada state democratic party, uh, but you can also send it to an organization like left caucus or DSA. Right. I, I, you can trust that if you're sending that money in and you want to advocate and support that it is in good hands. It is in good hands. It's going to go to Nevada Democrats and, and helping things there as opposed to like national ad buys for for yeah. some conservative Democrat that you don't care about. <laughs> Absolutely. I would, I would be very surprised if there was much left in the accounts okay. and taking care of next month of bills. I, I really would be surprised to learn there was there was anything in there. Right. So you brought up left caucus. I, I think it's also important to point out that they also swept the state board during the summer election. So that was one more yeah. sign of what was coming down the pike for the establishment. They yeah. should have known. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So where is Harry rehiding? And these are some of honestly, you know, I, I, I where I, I, I always remember to like think of think of the situation from the other shoes. I struggle here because these are some really amazing human beings. Like yeah. these are just people that fundamentally care about other people. And to hear that they're getting into positions of power at the state and local level, it's amazing. that's really, really exciting. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I struggle to, to understand how that's a bad thing. I think back of the on the Nevada caucus as being the turning point of where the year was like amazing and exciting and full of promise oh God, to, where yeah. it, to where it turned to absolute shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was the last yeah. like moment of joy I had in 2020 was the Nevada caucus. Uh, yeah. Then everything sort of fell but, apart, yeah, right? The last... <laughs> yeah. So, you, I mean, you, you probably were, were, were you at that huge rally the night before? Yes, I was. There was like a uh, huge rally. So much energy. It was so incredible. much energy. Like, yeah. It, yeah. It sticks out because it was like this last time that was a huge crowd, right? right. Like there's people, there's energy and like how much of that has been, ta- had been taken from us. As a result of it, it's it's also like interesting to think how much different things might have been. Um, but there's still, I mean, if if you walked out of that process feeling discouraged, it's very understandable. Yeah. Pay attention to what happened in Nevada because you've got leaders doing the work, and in many instances, who are capable of pushing policy left even farther. That's right. And uh, yeah. It's exciting. It's actually very yeah. You know, Dan. To me, that what just happened in Nevada is a sign that there that change is possible in the Democratic Party. So all those folks that have sort of given up on being able to uh, force change need to look at what happened in your state and 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 have some change of heart. And maybe, you know, like we we saw a lot of dem exiting going on over the last two years. Uh, but 
really, this to me is a sign that you can change the problems within within the Democratic Party if you um, fight hard enough and you get a group dedicated enough. And I think um, this should give hope to them and they should maybe reconsider not just leaving the, the party and doing something to fix it. It's, it's uh, definitely plausible. Yeah. So now yeah. that the DSA, well, I, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, I, I would just say like, you are so correct. You are so, so correct. But the stakes have never been higher than they are right now. Now is the time that we've got to follow through on the promises that we've made. And that means yeah. that we've got to double down the support of these causes. And it, because everyone wants Judith and her whole crew to fail. Everyone in the establishment yeah, not only for that, wants them they? to happen, but they're going to actively make sure that it happens. And we already saw the proof of that with these mass resignations, emptying the bank accounts, doing all this sort of, you know, all everything's coming into light. Now is when we have to double down and we have to ensure that we take this all the way. Indeed, but you know, some of that, Dan, could ultimately end up backfiring on the establishment because when they behave like they just did, voters see it and they're offended by it. So they, they yeah. lose support, they don't gain support. And I'm not, sh but I'm, I'm not sure that they understand that. So often establishment Democrats live in a bubble where they only see what they wanna see. Um, and this is why things surprise them. They come out of nowhere and surprise them. Where, whereas if they had been paying attention, they would have seen it coming. Uh, so now that yeah. the DSA has a major role in the Nevada uh, Democratic Party, which is amazing, um, what are their what are their plans coming up? What is the first order of business that they want to get done? Um, I, I mean, I think the first I I can't speak for Judas goals for the party, but what I can tell you from what I've observed is that what you will see is you're going to see it continuing to build the network and continuing to reach out, advocate for those, but also to bring people in to help people understand here's how this governance works, here's how the state processes work, here's how you can be involved. Mm -hmm. And not just because you have to, but here's how we can help you. You know, we talked about mutual aid, um, helping deliver meals during the holidays. You're gonna see the state party in Nevada showing what good work looks like and feels like to the people who need it. So I anticipate that you're gonna see a state party which is much more engaged, which is much more capable of reaching out to its constituents, which in spite of what people have said, mm -hmm. is gonna actually bring more people into the party. Mm -hmm. Judith made it very clear that she wants to revolutionize some of the tools. One of the first things that, to give you an idea yeah. of, of where Judith is, is going, she, we added in a bunch of new members to the state central committee. And, and one of Judith's first actions was to say, until further notice, these meetings will continue to be virtual. Okay. Think of how much easier it's gonna be for people to participate right. in what have traditionally been closed door meetings, inaccessible, hard to get to. You know, it's on a it's on a 12 o'clock on a Saturday at the Tropicana. Right. You know, like these have been hard. And so for, for Judith to take the step and say, listen, I get it. Until I say otherwise, until we say otherwise, this is gonna be virtual. So they will continue to make it more accessible. They will continue to make it more transparent and we will actually see benefits now. The biggest change I believe you will see in Nevada where we're going to really change the conversation is you're going to see activism that just doesn't happen in the two months pre preceding the election. Right. Gonna, that's, that's the only time we ever hear from the party. Hey, there's an election coming up. You got to show up and vote. You're going to see it in the middle of a summer when there's not an election anywhere close. You're going to see activism and engagement at the community level from the party. I can promise you that for sure. That's amazing. Uh, let me ask you specifically about something that's going on in the broader country right now, um, as in relation to this. So we recently had this fight for 15 uh, battle happening with the COVID relief bill. 
And I, so a lot of people are really disappointed, including me, that the progressive Democrats didn't stand up to the Joe Mansions in the party and put their foot down. This was a bill that was filibuster proof because it was budget reconciliation. So it was never going to uh, have a chance to be filibustered. So you only needed a majority to get it passed. And I think um, if a handful of progressives had said, we're not going to give you my vote, we're going to vote no unless you include the $15 minimum wage hike. If they had done that, they would have had yeah. more power, I think, at the, at the end of the day. The reason Joe Manchin has power is because he's willing to flex that. He's willing to play chicken. Yeah. He's willing to say, uh, yeah. yeah, no, I'm withdrawing my vote unless you do this. And everybody caves. So yeah, uh, what are your thoughts on that? And do you think... Do you think it would make a difference if we had more DSA controlled state parties sort of pushing mm -hmm. the elected senators and congressmen to like stand, hold and stand fast? Because right now I feel like they're not tapping into that strength. They're choosing to walk away out of fear as opposed to have being confident and standing up to the Joe Mansions. What are your thoughts? My, my first thought is Joe Manchin is an incredibly powerful president for United States yeah. Senator. Like it's, yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, and but it he's highlights, always that because he's taken hold of the power. He's made himself that, right? I mean. Absolutely. It is, it is the, um, centrism has, centrism has been the motto of the Democratic Party for the last 40 years. Let's be honest. That has been the way the party has operated. And I think most people are starting to see that that is not an effective method and model. Mm -hmm. And it, it just continues to be a matter of, you know, what AOC did in going out, out to Texas. Brilliant, bold strategy. We need to do more of that kind of thing. Yeah. We have, we live in a country which has devalued education historically. And so one of the things that the DSA is so great at is just giving space to educate people who want to be involved in the cause. Right. A lot of it's really unique to any other organization I've ever seen where they will actually just proactively engage the community to educate and to create space for conversation. And even to the point of saying like, you know, you may not agree with us, come sit down, let's talk about it, let's hear from you, how can we help you? And then by the way, they go out and they, they find a way to like raise money to fix someone's like car that broke down even though they probably right. might never ever vote for Democrat. That's what the DSA is, it's pretty amazing. Um, I would say have faith because, you know, this, this weekend was such a great example. I think everyone thought that the reaction would be, oh, crazy socialists took over Nevada. It's, a, <laughs> it's crazy. It's going to burn it to the ground. But there, even from some of the most, you know, a lot of people, as I was advocating for Judith leading up to the election, got a lot of, like, angry supporters of the establishment just throwing, throwing shade and, you know, calling me out for supporting her to a letter, almost every one of those people, now that they see what's happened, now that they see what, where the money's been going with the party, are now like, oh, no, actually, this is gross. I don't like yeah. this. So as we continue to educate and bring people into the fold, I mean, it's also just really fun. Like, it's, yeah. it is fun in a way that politics has not historically been. Right. Like, it's neat to see, you can show up to a meeting, you can make an impact in your community, and you can meet people who you're just, who are really, really fun. And in spite of what um, I think it's traditional with politics. Like you get involved with politics, you do organize, you make phone calls. And it's like, that's all you ever talk about. What I observe from the, the socialist wing of the party, the DSA specifically is that's definitely part of it. And it's by the way, very effective, but it's also not all of it. A lot of it is just conversations about doing good for other humans in a way that really pays off in right. a way that really makes 
feel good and you meet like lifetime friends. So many things happen. What I can tell you about DSA for sure. Look at Las Vegas. So many things happened over this last year, 2020. You had the shutdowns. You had Black Lives Matter. You had what happened with George Floyd. You had, um, you know, a, a burgeoning all right movement. Every time there was a need for support in a community, when I would show up to an event, there would be a crew with a DSA flag every single time without fail. And what that tells me is that it's capable of building a movement Mm-hmm. that is sustainable and that is more powerful every time. And by the way, every time I showed up over the course of that year, there was more people there from the DSA. Right. And that's a really good sign. I think what, you know, maybe as a, a different view, I think what we saw also through the summer is in contrast with the Democratic Party, it's always like flash in the pan moments of support. We're going to make a big deal out of it. Where's the Democratic Party on Black Lives Matter right now? Where are they? Yeah, the, that's a know, good question. Where, where, yeah. Where is the Democratic Party on, on children in cages? We're, we're putting 600 people. I saw you tweeted that. I retweeted that. Yeah. We're putting 600 people in a room designed for 100 people. Yeah, they haven't and really changed much since Trump's been in office in that area. It's yeah. really frightful. Yeah. And, and, and in this way, DSA is very consistent. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm excited. Indeed, that's true. Um, so I'm hoping that that this becomes a wave in a sense where voters take control of their state parties because I think it's how you do fix the national party. And right now, I mean, I mean, fight for 15 isn't the only popular uh, policy that's being ignored by the Democrats. Why are the Democrats ignoring Medicare for all, fight for 15? These these are um, policies that are popular with voters across the board. I mean, even Rep- there are Republicans that would vote yes for a candidate that supported these things, right? Yeah, so it's absolutely. it seems absolutely insane that they don't get behind these policies and instead are fighting against them. They're serving the donor class, donor class by doing this, and that's that's the obvious um, explanation, at least for me. So I'm hoping that the pressure yeah. builds enough where that's no longer an option, because what happened the last week with Joe Manchin is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, let me also well, ask you this, Dan: uh, the Republicans in the state. How, where are they at looking in at the Democratic Party now and seeing, like you said, socialists have taken over, right? The crazy socialists have taken yeah. over the Democratic Party. How is that being played out with Republicans? So I think oh, definitely it's definitely a conversation and they're definitely yeah. using it. Let's, be, it's definitely part of their conversation now. And that's to be expected, right? Like right. we would expect that to happen. But also like they, they, they were saying the same thing of Joe Biden in the weeks yeah. leading up to it. Joe Biden is the most socialist president ever. That's what they Which were actually is so saying. so ridiculous. Yeah, if that's what they're going yeah, to say, let's just go all the way and take the socialists. Uh, right? Let's actually, like, yes, agree. I agree with you. You yeah. might as well take yeah. it. Let's just go all the way. <laughs> um, what, what I can say, and, and where there's a real lesson here, and where I am so glad that Judith and team took over, is the, the Republican Party in Nevada is grown. Nevada is not a blue state. It's a purple state. It's purple. And while there may not be, yep, while there may not be significant infrastructure in terms of a candidate bench in the Republican Party, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people in Nevada who will vote Republican in spite of that. It's crazy. What they are very good at, the Republican Party, you know, going all the way back to like, especially 2016, they understand the investment in digital. They understand investing in mm-hmm. digital advocacy, resources, networking, and activism. And they are significantly ahead of not only Nevada State Party, but really every state uh, Democratic organization. The GOP is arguably two to three, maybe even four years ahead of the Democratic Party in terms of their digital organizing. Right. And that's okay. where it's all happening right now. And what's worse is you would think like COVID, maybe that might have like, 
created a moment to reset and refresh. The Republicans have only advanced and accelerated their digital advocacy and have used those tools at a time when that's the time to do it. Mm-hmm. The Democratic Party has not done that. They're, mm-hmm. uh, like we talked about before, they're still using television. They're still using phone calls. They're still Which is more expensive, too. Yeah, more expensive. Yeah. And so there is a significant gap. And we have to acknowledge that the GOP is much stronger. I see that on the ground in Nevada a lot because you will see these events that are sort of organized by the fringe of the Republican Party. Right. And they get a lot of people to show up. They're really good at it. I mean, you talk like the idea of a crazy anti-mask rally, but there's three, four hundred, five hundred people there. Right. Like that's significant. And it's not something that the Democratic Party has traditionally been very good at unless they bring in these like big name Democratic tickets. Right. Like you bring Obama into Nevada and and thousands of people are going to show up. There's no doubt about it. Right. Who are those people now? Who are they? We don't have those tools. Well, that's a good question. A lot of those voters went to Trump. Whether the Democratic Party cares to acknowledge that or not, it is a fact of the matter. So and it's something that they need to address. Part of the problem, again, is that they're not supporting uh, policies that would help the working class. And we have rabid income inequality out there. You know, when you're looking at a country in which over 80 percent of the new wealth that is being created is going to the one percent, you have anger, yeah. and oftentimes if you don't provide what I would call a left exit, meaning let's have a left exit to the income inequality that doesn't allow for fascism to rise. Well, we didn't do that yeah. in 2016, did we? Bernie Sanders would have been a left exit, right? He would have addressed yeah. the needs of the working yeah. class, raised the minimum wage, uh, redistributed money back, because let's be honest, it's been redistributed to the 1% now for uh, decades. Uh, yeah. They continue to extract wealth. So the reason people are angry is, is, is should be obvious. But the Democratic yeah. Party seems to be um, immune to the pain because they're too busy uh, catering to their donors or the professional class, which is at loggerheads yeah. with the working class. So they have to have a real yeah. heart to heart with themselves about who where they see themselves as a party. And if they really want to be the party of the working class, that's that's going to have to change because I'll tell you right now, if the Republican Party decides tomorrow to come out and say, we support a $15 minimum wage, it put a pitchfork yeah. in it. It's done. It's done. Yeah, you're right. We'll take faith in the fact that going back as far as, as Reagan, the GOP has quietly undergone at the state party level a massive transformation. Now, people like you and I would probably say that's not a good thing for the country. Yeah. I certainly believe it's not a good thing for the country. <laughs> but from an organizing and infrastructure perspective, yeah. the party not only changed many of its fundamental viewpoints, but yeah. empowered and enabled people all the way from state legislatures to the judiciary to the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump was elected president. He yeah. almost got elected again. That's right. And so, you know, take faith in knowing that with this time, with the resources, like fundamentally 20 and 30 years from now, there, if we do the work, the Democratic Party, what we now know of as the Democratic Party will, will not exist. It will be a much more progressive, much more citizen-focused party. That's right. it will, you know, the, the consultants will not have a space in that party. But you are correct. The consultants, the Democratic Party is an umbrella uh, big umbrella. We represent a lot of, of views and values across the country, but at its core, it is a money moving organization yeah. for the political class. That's what it is structurally. So what it's become. And, and we've made, yeah, and we've made good change in the world in spite of that structural change and that st- structure of what the party is. When things happen, like like what happened in Nevada on Saturday, that 
is what is going to propel the change forward, and it will. But you have to show up. You got to build your own charter. Yeah. You got to you got to make the phone calls. It's the first. You want to start a DSA wing in your city, your state. You're in a rural state in North Dakota. It's gonna suck for a little bit. It's not gonna be fun. You're gonna you're gonna have some Zoom meetings. Maybe no one's gonna show up that first couple of times. Right. But keep at it because eventually it will build. And what I've seen all the time, especially with DSA, is the momentum is such that it's unstoppable. And it absolutely is. I have to say, it's impressive. It's absolutely impressive what the DSA has accomplished in the state of Nevada. It's impressive. Yeah, it really is. So have faith. It's good. I, yeah. Good things are coming. <laughs> yeah. Have faith, people. Come back to the Democratic Party. Don't demex it. <laughs> Well, I mean, this is a valuable conversation because as much as, and look, I'm somebody, full disclosure, I have absolutely voted for third-party candidates in the past as well as Democrats. And, you know, that depends on where you are. You know, in California, you could have a viable Green Party candidate running for Congress or city council. It's it's not a crazy thing. But but there's absolutely no, there's no outcome in which a third-party candidate could take the presidency. And that's just reality, whether we like it or not. Not right now. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I think it's okay to, you know, pick your candidates and vote for the person you best like when, when voting. I mean, you should be doing that. But just understand that if we really want to have change in the country, we do work within a two-party system. And, yeah. uh, I mean, even if you had, like, some random third-party person take, you know, a big chunk of the vote, you would still have to deal with the Electoral College. What are you going to do with that, yeah. right? Anyway. Exactly. Congratulations, Good Dan. happening. Congratulations, yeah, Dan, we'll, on what you guys we'll have achieved. Oh, sorry. Yeah, we will. Yeah, no, I was like, you. thank you so much. You, you're hitting all the nails on the heads in all the right places. Now is the time. We've got to make sure this moves all the way. We're, I, I would use a sports metaphor. I don't know sports. So, you know, like we're, we're, we're building the plane as we fly it. I do know that. We're in the air. We're building this plane. We've got to make sure that we finish it and that we touch down in one piece. We can, we will, but now is the time. Every part of the Democratic establishment wants what happens in Nevada to fail. We must make sure that it grows from here. Two, one state at a time, two states at a time, three states at a time. Two years from now, I really think when we look at 2022, we're going to see a strong emergence of, of democratic socialism in America, especially after 2022. Absolutely. So, Dan, let me ask you this. If folks want to keep tabs on this story, what is your Twitter handle so they can follow you? Because I'm sure you're going to be posting more disclosures on things as you find them. Yeah, please. Uh, You're welcome to follow. I'll be happy to continue to to press this. You should follow Las Vegas DSA on Twitter. You should follow Left Caucus on Twitter. And you should follow me on Twitter. It's Dan Roll. That's R-O-L-L-E. I'd love to have you follow. I'd love to keep you posted. If you want to get involved, my DMs are open. Send me a message. I'm happy to help. Happy to help you uh, connect with the right people to build the state party infrastructure that you need to. And again, there's really good change coming down the pipeline for sure. Right on, right on. 